Amen. Yeah. All right, well, um, I hope somewhere, wherever you are, uh, you have access to a Bible this morning. Um, I should add that if you regularly use the Bible app when you gather with us, um, the same resources are available to you today that are always available to you, so you can find us right now and pull up where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 as we conclude this morning our series walking through this Old Testament book, the book of Ruth. I can tell you from personal experience that there is a really profound difference between driving Interstate 80 through the plains and fields of Nebraska and driving the winding switchbacked roads of the Blue Ridge Parkway. Interstate 80 in Nebraska is unbelievably flat and unbelievably straight. I mean, there are just cornfields as far as the eye can see, and those fields are as flat as your kitchen table, and there are literally stretches of that highway where it will dawn on you as you drive it, you don't really even need a steering wheel on your car because there's nothing to get in the way, and so the road, it just goes, and it's straight, and it's unwavering, it's unbending, and it's just straight as an arrow into the horizon and beyond. But the Blue Ridge Parkway, of course, it's the exact opposite of that, right? It's winding and turning, and there are switchbacks, and you swerve, and you bend around things, and for every mile that you move forward, it takes like 10 miles of driving because the the road just curves and curves and curves all over the place. And as we think about the book of Ruth that we've been walking through now for six weeks as a church, I think one of the enduring lessons that this book intends to teach us is that life with our Lord, the Christian life, it's far more like the winding switchback roads of the Blue Ridge Parkway than it is like that arrow-straight interstate across the fields of Nebraska. Ruth, it tells us that God uses hard things, that he puts obstacles in our paths. He causes us to climb mountain peaks and descend into shadowy valleys. He causes us to bend and swerve around the obstacles that he puts in our way. But he does all of that for our good and for his glory. That he does not intend our life to be like that arrow straight highway across Nebraska, but rather like the winding switchback roads of the Blue Ridge Parkway. And he does all of that so that he can draw us nearer to him and so that he can accomplish his good and glorious purposes in us through them. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who has endured hardship upon hardship in her life. If you know Johnny's story, you know that that is true. She once said in an interview a statement that has just gotten lodged under my skin and into my heart and that I just carry with me. I've carried it for, for decades now. She said once, she said, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And what she means is that God uses the hard and heavy things that he brings into our lives to accomplish his very glorious, straight purposes. And so we can endure hard things, but God uses those hard things to accomplish what he longs to accomplish in us. And that's what we see in Ruth, page after page of hardship and toil that the Lord is using for his purposes. I mean, just think about the hardship we've seen in this book. Naomi, one of the book's key characters, one of the main characters, right? She experiences the death of her husband, the deaths of both of her sons. She experiences famine. She experiences poverty. She experiences alienation. 
Ruth, one of the other key characters in the book, she experiences the death of her husband. She experiences alienation when she follows her bitter, grieving mother-in-law back to a place that she does not know, to live among a people that she does not know. I mean, the characters in this book, they've been dragged through the valley of the shadow of death. They've suffered. They've endured hardship. Yet the book teaches us that God is working. He's winding these women along the switchbacks of life to accomplish a great and glorious purpose in their lives for their good. As we roll into chapter four this morning, we get a sense that God is on the cusp of doing that very thing. And so let me, let me pray for us today, and then we'll work through this passage together. God, we thank you for the fact that you are a good and glorious God who uses all things, good things and hard things, to accomplish your purpose. Lord, it's not been lost on me this week that You have ordained for us to be in this passage uh, long before we ever heard of the coronavirus or COVID-19. You knew that that we as the people of Life Church would be setting our minds and our hearts under these ideas and these teachings today because you knew that we would need to hear these things. And so we praise you for the fact that you have allowed us now to sit under your word and to consider it together. We pray that your spirit would work in us. We pray that the The live stream would not be a distraction to us that would keep us from hearing your voice. We pray that there there would be nothing in the way of us really listening to you and responding to who you are and to who you have revealed yourself to be in your holy and precious word. And I pray that you would work in us right now as we sit under your word together as your people. We pray all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in this story, we we finished chapter three last week and we left Ruth and Boaz, Ruth and Naomi waiting for Boaz. He's gone to determine who it is that will redeem Naomi and Ruth. There might be this other dude who can do that or he might do it. And he's gone to determine what's the answer to that question. Who will redeem these women? Let's pick the story up in chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, that's the other guy, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now let me just mention a couple of things. Um, First of all, all of this, it's happening at the town gate because that's where business got done in the ancient world. Here in the city of Salisbury, if you want to get business done, you roll into a place like Coco Java because inevitably you're going to find somebody there with whom you can do business. Every time I walk in there, it seems like somebody from Life Church's staff is working there, and I'm halfway convinced that Colin Denton actually lives there. If Beth, his wife, didn't assure me otherwise, I would assume that he had just like a cot set up in the back or something because he's always there. This is the place where business gets done in Colin's life. If he were in the ancient world, that would be the town gate. That's why Boaz goes to the town gate to find this other redeemer. And behold, the text tells us, that other redeemer comes by. Now, if you've been following the story, you know that that's not an accident, that this isn't just coincidence that this other redeemer came by at this moment. No, that's God's plan. God has been working all things out in the story. He's behind the scenes and beneath the surface. And so here he brings that other redeemer to the town gate just as Boaz is there waiting for him. But then I want you to pay attention to how Boaz greets him. My translation, Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. 
And most English translations say something like that. They, call, they have Boaz calling this guy friend. But they do that because the Hebrew that lies behind that is really like untranslatable. We can't make sense of it. It doesn't, it doesn't actually mean anything because the Hebrew author of this story, the narrator of this story, describes this other redeemer as this nameless dude. So literally in the Hebrew, Boaz says something like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, or hey, John Doe, turn aside, sit down here. And the question for us is, why would the narrator of this story go out of his way to conceal from us the name of this other person? Names in this book, they take on such significance, right? Elimelech, Naomi's husband, his name meant, my God is king, which is this ironic statement because he lived very much like he was king, not like God was king. Naomi, at the end of chapter one, when she comes to Bethlehem, empty and bitter, she says, don't call me Naomi because that means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Like the names, they, they help tell the story of this book. So why would the narrator who's telling that story bring us this character who gets no name, who is nameless. That's what we find out as we continue to read. Verse two, he, Boaz, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here with us. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now right there, if you've been rooting for Ruth and Boaz in this story, like that's the moment where you fear the worst is about to happen that this other guy, that he's going to step up and do what we really want Boaz to do. But pay careful attention to how the narrator is building tension in the story because he wants us to fear that right here. And then he adds the key detail in the whole dynamic. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And as we see, that's the detail that changes everything for this man. Verse six, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so Boaz adds the detail. You have to acquire Ruth the Moabite along with Elimelech's land. And that changes everything for this other redeemer. He says, no, 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 I can't do it. You do it. Now what's going on here? We have to realize that there are two separate but equally important ideas that are at stake in the redemption of Naomi and Ruth. One is Elimelech's family land, and the other is Elimelech's family name. When this man is primarily thinking about Elimelech's family land, He's willing to pay whatever is necessary to redeem that land. He's willing to fork over the cash because he thinks, man, there's an initial investment up front, but maybe I can, I don't know, you know, raise some organic chickens on that land or farm some organic barley, and eventually over time, I'll make back my investment, and so it's okay. This man, he's willing to redeem the land, but what he's not willing to do is to redeem the name of Elimelech. 
What does that mean? Well, in Old Testament times, if a man died and left behind a widow who had no children, it was customary for someone else in his family to marry his widow, and having married his widow, to have children who would legally be the children not of the second husband, but of the first husband. That's really what's at stake here. What that allows for is the name of the dead first husband to continue in history. See, names are significant in this story. And someone's name carrying on, that's significant in this story. And that's what this nameless other redeemer isn't willing to do. It's so ironic, isn't it? His name, which doesn't even get mentioned in this book, doesn't get mentioned in this book because he's not willing to redeem the name of Elimelech. He's not willing to pay the price that that will involve. What is that price? Well, he's going to have to buy the land, but then he's also going to have to marry Ruth the Moabite. When he's thinking about just Naomi, he's like, this is no big deal. Naomi, she's old, she can't have children anymore, so I'll fork over the money for the land, but then we'll be good. But the second Boaz reminds him of Ruth the Moabite. He realizes that this is going to be far more costly than he originally understood. See, Ruth is still young enough to have children, and so she's going to have children. Suddenly, this other redeemer is footing the bill for Naomi, for Ruth, for any kids he might have with Ruth. She's going to have to buy them diapers and pay their college tuition and all of that. But then at the end of the day, the land isn't technically going to belong to him. It's going to belong to Ruth's children so that they can perpetuate the name of the dead man, Elimelech. This man, he processes all of that, and he says, I just can't pay that. That's too much. I can't impair my own inheritance, he tells Boaz. And so he says to him, you redeem it. What a tragic irony here. This man who is nameless to us is nameless because he wouldn't pay the price to redeem the name of the dead man. Boaz His name rings in history because he was willing to pay the price of redemption. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Seems like a weird custom to us, but I think we can understand the symbolism, right? This other redeemer, he takes off his sandal and he says to Boaz, here, you, you stand in my shoes, in my place, as the man who will redeem the name and the land of Elimelech. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Now, we might not really be excited about the language of Boaz buying Ruth or acquiring Ruth. That's not how we would talk today for good reason, because we don't want to think of anyone as anyone else's property. I don't think even Boaz means to suggest that Ruth is his property in this conversation. In the Old Testament, commonly, the Lord even will speak of buying his people or purchasing or acquiring his people. And all he means by that is the fact that he has paid everything necessary for his people to belong to him. And so in Exodus 15, when the Lord is bringing his people out of Egypt, he says, I have acquired my people. He uses the same word. I've acquired my people by the blood of the Passover lamb. That's what Boaz means here. I've paid everything necessary to acquire Ruth. Verse 10, also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off 
from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then I want you to pay attention. The people then bless Boaz and Ruth and their family. There are three parts of this blessing. The first one is on Ruth. They say, may the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And then they bless Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And then they bless their family. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, I wish we could unpack each piece of that blessing because there's really some sweet and significant ideas just crammed into those three blessings. I'm really going to focus just on the first part of it today, on the way the people of Bethlehem bless Ruth. What do they say to her? They say, may the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah, two wives of the patriarch Jacob, who was the father of the nation of Israel. These people are essentially praying that Ruth would be prodigious, that she would bring forth many children, and that those children would endure into the annals of Israel's history, that they would be established in the people of God, that their names would be significant. And that's a really remarkable thing for the people of Bethlehem to pray over Ruth at this moment for one significant reason, and we actually haven't talked about this at any point in our study of this book so far. Here's the really significant thing here. I am certain at this point in her life, Ruth and everyone in her life believes that she cannot have children. They believe that she is barren. Why do I say that? Well, if we go back to chapter one, we learn that Ruth and Malon were married for 10 years and they had no children. Now in modern times, when we do like family planning and things like that, that wouldn't be a big deal. I mean, a lot of people will wait for a certain number of years after they're married before they start having kids. But in ancient times, it just didn't work that way. Children were key to your economic, your social, and your political stability, right? They were key to your economic stability. They would farm your land for you. They were key to your political stability because they would fight in your armies for you. And they were key to your social stability because they would make sure that your family name endured into history. And so because of that, a woman like Ruth would have understood that her primary purpose in life, the second she was married, was to start producing children. Yet for 10 years, she was married to Malon, and she couldn't do that. She didn't do that. And now we know, because of modern science, that the husband contributes something to the whole process of procreation, but in the ancient world, people didn't think that way. They thought that that was entirely the responsibility of the woman. And so the fact that Ruth has not had children after being married for 10 years that everybody would have assumed that Ruth was barren, that she was incapable of having children. And yet here the people of Bethlehem, they pray over her. May the Lord bless you like Rachel and Leah, two women who also at various points in their lives were barren for significant stretches of their married lives. May the Lord bring forth from you children who will endure into the annals of Israel's history. There's no way these people could have known just how prophetic that blessing and that prayer was. Let's see how it turns out. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Absolutely everyone in the story would have considered that a miracle. The fact that the Lord allowed Ruth 
to bear a son with Boaz. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, I'm sorry, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then they only took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now the thing that's striking to me about the very end of this story is the way that everybody freaks out about Naomi, and not Ruth, the person who's just given birth to a son. Not Ruth, the person who was barren for 10 years and then gives birth to a son. Nobody seems to care about her. Everybody's freaking out about Naomi. Why is that? Well, we need to understand that really there are two crises that the story of Ruth addresses as the story plays out. The first crisis is a crisis of kingship. You might remember that this story is set in the days of the judges. In the days of the judges, they were a pretty dark and bleak time in Israel's history. One of the features of that dark and bleak time was the fact that no one was ruling in the place of God. That's why the last verse of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king, everyone did whatever he wanted to do or she wanted to do. And so it was just a period of moral and spiritual chaos. Right after the book of Ruth in our Bible is the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel, they decide, you know what, we, we need a king like the nations. We need somebody who's going to be our leader. But they didn't want a leader the way God wanted them to be led. They didn't want the kind of leader that God wanted them to have. Which is why they called Saul, who at first did some decent things, but then proved to be an absolutely terrible king over God's people. And most of the book of 1 Samuel is about Saul's decline, not his rise. But then God, he speaks into that. Right? He knows that his people need a king, a king after his own heart. And so he provides that king. It's David, the grandson of Obed, the son of Jesse. And so on one level, the crisis that the book of Ruth is resolving is the crisis of kingship. This is God providing a king for his people. And we might think about that and be very encouraged by that and very comforted by that because that means that God is working in all of history to accomplish his purposes, right? He sees that his people need something and so he speaks into that. He shows up. He does stuff in history to meet his people's needs. And so the famine in Bethlehem, the death of Elimelech and Malon and Kilian, the emptiness of Ruth and Naomi, all of that has been a part of the plan that God has used to bring his people a king. And we might think that's awesome that God is able to do that, but it really stinks for Ruth and Naomi. It really stinks that they had to go through such hard and heavy things in their lives. But friends, the crisis of kingship isn't the only crisis that the Lord is overcoming in this story. We see, especially here at the end, that he's also working to overcome the crisis of Naomi's emptiness. Right? He's not just this great God who does whatever he wants to accomplish his purposes. He's also a good God who loves his people and cares about our needs and our burdens. And so even Naomi in the story, he works history in such a way that he accomplishes not only what brings his name glory, but what brings his people good. He's concerned about Naomi. And so at the end of chapter one, when she comes back and she's like, man, I'm empty, I'm bitter. The Lord, he cares about that. 
And so he works even in the end of this story to fill what is empty in Naomi. He meets her needs. And so that's what we see here at the end when, when the people, they're celebrating, not Ruth, but Naomi. They're speaking to that. In verse 15, they say, the Lord's given you a son. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And we might think when we hear that, that they're speaking about Boaz, Naomi's new son-in-law, who's this remarkable dude who is willing to pay the price of redeeming Ruth and Naomi and their land. But that's not who the people of Bethlehem are speaking about. They're speaking about Obed, the son born to Naomi. That's why they say in verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi, and then they name him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, what they're celebrating is the fact that legally speaking now, Naomi, she has what she lost. She is full where she was empty because the Lord has provided for her a son. And though biologically, yes, he is the child of Boaz and Ruth, legally speaking, he is the child of Elimelech and Naomi. And so her arms are full again with a child, a son who will carry on the name of the dead, the name of her dead husband, Elimelech. And so the story of Ruth is God working in all of history to accomplish this purpose, but working very specifically in the life of Naomi and Ruth to fill their emptiness. In particular here, we see him filling Naomi's emptiness through the son, Obed. He is a great God, but he is a good God as well. Now, what are we to make of the story of Ruth 3,000 years later? Like, what's the one enduring lesson that we should take away from this book? How do we apply this book to our lives today, three months from now, three years from now, but especially today, as a people walking through a season of challenge and trial and uncertainty? One thing we need to recognize is that as a people, we are always tempted to derive our joy and our security from our circumstances. In general, when things are going well, we feel good, and when things are going poorly, we feel like everything's falling apart. Right? This is why you respond the way you respond when someone pays you a compliment. Right? There's a little bit of extra wind in your sails when somebody says something nice and kind to you. And at the same time, it's why you feel worthless when somebody says something sharply critical to you, even if it's true, like it just tears you down an extra notch or two. This is why you might binge on Netflix or alcohol or porn or something else after a long bad day at work or after an argument with your spouse. This is why we're always intoxicated by the lure of new stuff. Right, why we have this sense of anticipation anytime we're about to get something new or we have something new. It's why you feel like you're suddenly worth more as a human being when you wear a new shirt for the first time. All until the lure of that new stuff wears off, until its luster wears off, and then that feeling goes away. And this is, frankly, why many of us feel a real measure of panic during a global health crisis. Because as people, we're always inclined to look to our circumstances for our joy, and for our security. Like if you want to know if this is you, if this describes you on any level, you can just ask yourself these two questions. First, does my affection for the Lord decrease when I suffer loss, pain, or trial? And then secondly, does my affection for the Lord increase when I experience success or acceptance or reward? 
right? Do I feel better about God and my relationship with God when things are going well? Or do I feel worse about those things when things aren't going well? And the simple truth is, if you answer yes to either of those questions, and all of us will from time to time answer yes to one or both of those questions, then that's an indication to us that we're putting our joy and our trust and our security in something that is outside of us, in some external circumstance. And the problem with that is that every earthly circumstance changes. Right, I hope you hear me on that today, church. You can have the most incredible marriage ever, that marriage is going to come to an end. You can kill it at your job and do great things at your job. There will be a day when everything in your office gets packed up into one of those sad little cardboard boxes and you walk out the door while your replacement adjusts the lumbar support in his new office chair. Or you can have the nicest stuff, but everything that you own is the stuff of a future landfill or a future garage sale. Right? Everything in this life changes. Everything in this life goes away. You can be perfectly healthy. There's still going to be a day when they lay you in a box or in an incinerator somewhere. Because every earthly circumstance changes. Nothing lasts forever. Which means we're fools if we derive our joy or our security from something that we know is going to change. But what the book of Ruth lays before us is the reality of a God who works in and through every earthly circumstance to accomplish his purpose, his glorious work, and our good. Right in the book of Ruth, we find a God who's never limited by what happens in this life. In fact, we find a God who is sovereign over everything that happens in this life, and that he works everything that happens in this life to accomplish what he wanted to happen from the very beginning and to accomplish what is our good. Right, Ruth and Naomi, their earthly circumstances were terrible. Dead husbands, dead children, no children, family, poverty, affliction, alienation. These women, they saw the Lord wreck their lives all so that he could put them back together in a way that was sweeter and better than they ever could have imagined. In the story of Ruth, it teaches us that God works in every circumstance to make his empty people full, to redeem his lost and forsaken people. And with the crooked sticks of our lives, he draws beautiful, straight lines through glory. And through the ups and downs of human history, God, he's given us a redeemer who's willing to pay the price to redeem us. That's our redeemer, Jesus, friends. He, he did not hesitate at the cost of redeeming us like Boaz, he counted that cost well, and though it was suffering and shameful and full of toil and torment for him, though he literally sweat drops of blood and hung in agony on a cross in order to redeem us, he was willing to pay the price. He satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. He paid the full penalty of our sin. Like Boaz, Jesus counted the cost of redeeming us, and he paid the price necessary to redeem us. And in the process, he ensures that we'll be full, no matter what happens in this life, right? Through the ups and downs of human history, God, he's given us a redeemer who replaces our emptiness with fullness, who gives us hope and a future because of the cross. And so he brings us into an eternal circumstance that will never change. He gives us a joy and a security that nothing can ever separate us from. 
And so in sending us a child who is a savior, like Obed, Jesus offers us a fullness of redemption that fills every ache in our longing hearts and gives us a joy that can endure forever. Friends, he works in and through every circumstance for our good, for his glory. He works in and through every cell and every organism for our good and for his glory. He works in and through every virus for our good and for his glory. There is no cell or molecule in all of creation that does not submit to him in the end. See, with every crooked stick and every life, he's drawing straight lines to glory and to our joy. And so I just ask you today, do you know the comfort of finding rest and refuge in a God like this? Do you know the peace of trusting in him and resting in him in every circumstance? Do you know the hope of calling him your redeemer? I pray that you do. Lord, we thank you for counting the cost and paying the price necessary to redeem us. And we thank you for the fact that you're not powerless when bad things happen. You're not surprised when bad things happen. In fact, Lord, as we consider this story, we can only conclude that you sometimes cause those bad things to happen without ever compromising your goodness, without ever compromising your holiness. You have this this greater purpose in them. And so you can use hard and heavy and crooked things in our lives to accomplish your glorious purpose. That's incredible. But we're so thankful for the fact that we can find rest in a God who is capable of using this pain and this affliction in the story and the pain and affliction in our own lives even to bring about what you know is best, to bring about what you know will fill us, to bring about what you know will bring you glory. Lord, because those things are true, it's the cry of our heart that you would just lead us to praise you as your people today. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.